Psalm 33, 12 to 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even when we ourselves, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us, helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are, all, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, we're at the end of this year. And uh, in my memory, it's been a while since we had a year we were so eager to be at the end of. The world, it seems, is troubled. That's probably not a really adequate way of saying what we might observe. Troubled, distressed. Here's some words this text uses. Groaning, suffering, futile, corrupt, pained. Well, when you come to the end of the year, for some reason, I don't know why, because we determined the year kind of in an arbitrary way, you know, well, here's the beginning, here's the end. When we come to this day, that's the end, and the next day is the beginning of the next one, and it's just because we decided, you know, no, there's nothing really special about those days, but, you know, we count the years, and we've now we've figured out that a year is how long it takes us to make one whole orbit around the sun, so we've been around one more time. For some reason, we all, and all human cultures do this however they happen to write their calendars, we all do this. We come to the end of a year, and we say, so, how's it going? And it's a time to assess. And we assess each of individually, and we assess in families, and we assess in communities, and we assess in nations and cultures, and we're saying to ourselves, how's it going? How are we doing? What needs to change? So we, it's a time of assessing and addressing. 
And we were thinking about, well, what do you need? What do you need to change? What needs to improve? And, you know, individually we make all kinds of little resolutions, we call them. Commitments to change. I will, starting January 1st, I will, whatever it is I think I need to do, For us Christians, it's often, you know, I'm going to, I'm this year, I'm really going to actually read the Bible. There's, you know, there's a, there's a real challenge in that particular resolution. The, the very first book of the Bible will hold your interest, the book of Genesis, because it's got, you know, it's like a story and it's, got some drama and tension and, you know, it's kind of exciting. So, you know, if you're going to read the whole Bible through in a year, you'd probably get through Genesis, I don't know, before January was over. Then you get to Exodus, well, that's pretty dramatic. And then you get to Leviticus and you will have no idea what it's about. I went to four, five long years of theology school, and when I sit down and read the book of Leviticus, I'm like, what? I have no idea what this is. I have to go look it up. I have to get some other smart guy to help me figure out why I need to care about this stuff. It's a challenge. Now, I would suggest that reading through the Bible is a really, really, really good idea for a New Year's resolution. And what you need to do when you get to Leviticus is keep going. Just don't quit. Just decide, resolve. I'm just going to read it to see what is in there. Don't worry about whether you can figure out all the deep meaning of it. I mean, one of the things we learned from Jesus is Leviticus is somehow about Jesus. You don't have to figure out the details of that. Just see if you can see what's there and keep going. Because just ingesting the Word of God will have a positive impact on your soul. You just trust God with that and keep going. So, sorry, I didn't really mean to preach to you about how to keep your New Year's resolution to read the Bible, but I think it's a good one. But this is what we do. You might even make a New Year's resolution to pray more or more regularly or to have what, you know, has come to be called a quiet time every day a daily devotional time. Also, a very healthy practice. It's good for you. Kind of like eating breakfast is good for you. Well, here's the problem, though. What should you pray for? This year, 
This week, what is it you're praying for? I'd like us to stop and think about one year ago, what was our frame of mind? One year ago, when we were assessing and addressing 2019, looking forward to 2020. Because here's my observation, none of us had any idea what we were in for. And all of our prayers, I don't remember what I was praying for. Do you remember what you were praying for? I don't try to keep track, but uh, here's, here's something I'm pretty sure of. I wasn't really praying for the right thing. Because I didn't know. I didn't know. Well, that's what we see in this text. And what we see in this text is, in Romans chapter 8, we never know. We never know. Here's Here's what it says. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. Well, of course you don't. I mean, how much do I know? Not much. Here's something I really don't know. What's going to happen tomorrow? Let alone in April. And if I were going to pray intelligently, uh, that's a future-oriented thing, isn't it? Like, what's going to happen? Lord, please do this or that. That's all in the future. I don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. We don't know what's good for us. Even if I knew what was coming, I really don't know what the Lord should give us in light of what's coming. I don't know what would be best. So even if I knew what the problem was going to be, would I know what the Lord needed to provide for us in that problem? Not really, no. Even now, if we think about our, you know, big virus panic, do we know what really needs to be done about that? Well, yes, we do. All of us do. I've had a conversation with almost everyone I know about what really needs to happen in response to the virus because I am an expert on this. So I am happy to tell everyone what needs to be done. And, you know, every time I do that, someone says, well... 
what really needs to be done, and it turns out they also are an expert, and they know what needs to be done, and, and so does he and her and everyone else. Everyone knows exactly what needs to be done. But it's not the same. So what I know needs to be done and what you know needs to be done are two separate things. Who to believe? And this is true not just among us regular ignorant citizens, but among those who lead us and those who are supposed to know. They don't know either. Because it's not possible to know. We have to find our way. So our understanding of the situation is incomplete and incorrect. Our grasp of what the solution should be is incomplete and incorrect. We don't know what to pray for. So maybe we should just not bother. No, that's not the solution this scripture proposes. The scripture, the solution this scripture proposes is, well, pray anyway, because God knows. And what are you doing when you pray other than looking to God who knows? And so at the end of our prayers, I think, you know, God, let me share with you the solution. I know you need to be informed about what the solution is. So here's the solution you need to impose on us. This is what we need, Lord. It's a good thing the Lord loves us. (laughs) I think... I would really get tired of listening to all these proposed solutions if I were the Lord, but thank goodness I'm not, and he is, and he loves us, and he knows. And so he can provide according to his wisdom, not mine. Well, here's what the scripture says. When I pray, the Spirit himself intercedes With groanings too deep for words, he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints, the the children of God, according to the will of God. So when I pray, the Spirit prays. And the Spirit corrects my ignorance, my lack of wisdom, according to God's will. Now, does that make you feel better? Because I was telling you, you don't know how to pray. But pray anyway. Trust God. And God himself, God the Spirit, intercedes for you, the the ignorant prayer. God intercedes for you according to God's will so that when your prayer reaches the ears of the Father, it has been actually corrected 
so that you now are praying for the right thing. The Oh, wait, no, now you're praying for the will of God. Is that what you want? You know, we hesitate at this point. We're not sure how much we want God's will. God could want some things that I don't want. You can find this in the Bible, right? Just randomly off the top of my head, I think of Moses. And God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, Moses, I need you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go because I'm going to take them out of Egypt to the promised land. So Moses, go back to Egypt. And Moses says, no, I'm not going back to Egypt. Are you crazy? I'm not your man for that, God. Now, This is just one example, and you could find a million of them. Okay, maybe not a million, but a lot of them. You could find a lot of examples in the Scripture itself where God's will and what and the person's will do not meet. So when we read this question, look, the Spirit of God prays for you. When you pray, the Spirit prays according to the will of God. Sometimes, we're not so sure that's what we want. Well, the title of our sermon today is God's Resolution. And the idea is, you might make some resolutions for the new year. And in this text of Scripture, we read what God has resolved for every last one of His children. What is the will of God? Well, here's the answer to that question. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So when I'm in that frame of mind that says, Well, uh, the will of God. Well, God, tell me what your will is, and then I'll decide whether that's good or not. What this says is that it is good. All things God causes to work together for the good of those who love God. All things, all the time, work together for the benefit of God's children. All things, all the time. Now, this leads me to conclude that God's idea of a benefit to me and my own idea of a benefit to me do not always coincide. Sometimes his idea and my idea are not exactly the same. Now, we're talking about the difference between my wisdom and God's wisdom, so who's right? 
This is not hard to figure out. So I'm the one that needs to correct my idea, but this is God's will. The benefit of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That is, God determined ahead of time an outcome in the life of these people. So if you want to know what the prayer of the Holy Spirit when he intercedes when you pray, if you want to know what it is aimed at, here is the answer. God has predestined these people to become conformed to the image of his son. That is the good that Romans 8.28 is talking about when it says God causes all things to work together for good. My idea of good is not always that, but that's the actual good. That's the thing of actual value. If that were to actually happen to you, you would be most blessed. So whatever idea you've got is nowhere near as good as this idea, which is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ so that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is ultimately about the gloriousness of God's grace, the, great, the greatness of Christ in that in his uh, sacrifice, he has made us like himself. And that is the benefit that God has in mind. So all my ignorant praying is aimed at whatever I happen to be thinking of that day. And God is, God the Spirit is interceding with God the Father so that that prayer becomes a prayer that I would be conformed to the image of his Son. Our benefit is to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's nothing better that could happen to you. This is in that scripture I talk about all the time in 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What? And such we are. And we don't know what we will be, but we do know that when we see him we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. The vision of Christ transforms us into the image of Christ, and that is our destiny in Christ. Predestined by God. This is God's resolution. This is God's resolution. God hasn't made a resolution about my uh, weight. You know, whether I'm going to trim down this year. 
You've known me long enough to know that that's very unlikely. And I haven't resolved that, just so you know. But God hasn't made any resolutions about how many sales calls a person might make or how whether they're going to achieve this or that goal, blah, blah, blah. God is working all of those things for this, for this, for this, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. All the rest is details. And he's working it, and he's working it, and he's working it, and he is faithful to himself, and he is faithful to you in his faithfulness to himself, and so he will keep this promise, period. He goes on to say here, those he called, uh, those he predestined, that is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, those he also called. And then he justified them. How did he do that? Well, read the first part of the book of Romans. He justified them by the cross of Christ and they received that by trusting in it. And so he conformed, he, he, he credited us with the very righteousness of Jesus. He gives us credit for that because we trust in the sacrifice of Christ. So we are, in that sense, justified, made right before God. And then he says, whoever he did that for, he also glorified. Well, that is yet to come. That's the promise of the resurrection. But it's spoken of here as though it has already been accomplished. God has a resolution in your life to conform you to the image of his son. He will not fail. So he says, well, then what, should, what do we say to this? <laughs> I think it's an honest question. Like, what do you say to that? There's nothing much to say to that. If God's for us, who's against you? I could ask you that question, who's against you? And you could probably give me an answer. You could probably name some other people that feel like they're against you. So, I mean, that's what Paul's saying. Yeah, but God's for you. The whole world could be against you and God's for you. He goes on. (laughs) He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We talked about this, that in, in Hebrews, when... Jesus is named heir of all things, and in him I, so am I. I might ask you the question, what do you need? What do you need? And we might, in this life, be in a position of genuine need. People do go hungry. And here we read that in Christ I have everything. 
And what we would know if we read, say, Philippians chapter 4, we read Paul, what Paul says there is, when I have nothing, I have everything, and I'm okay. And he wasn't, you know, that wasn't a hypothetical in his life, like it might be in yours. They could kill you and you'd be okay. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who's, who's going to condemn you? Right at the beginning of this chapter we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No charge against us will stand. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So at the beginning of this text, we read that the Spirit of God is interceding for us when we pray our ignorant prayers. He prays according to God's will, which is to conform us to the image of his Son. And here we read his Son also intercedes for us. This is a powerful combination. Does God the Father deny the prayer of the Son? No. Not once, never. You might think, oh, what about that garden prayer? Not my will, but yours is the period on that prayer. And their wills came together. There's no, nothing the Son asks God the Father on your behalf that is denied. Not one thing, not one time. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, then he gives a list of possibilities. Troubles, distresses, persecutions. No, no, no. Famine. What if we were starving? There are Christians in the world today who are. Does that mean God doesn't love them? No. They cannot be separated from his love by famine or by nakedness or danger or even the sword. And when, this, when Paul uses the word sword here, he means even being executed. He says, for your sake, it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. So what Paul is saying here is when God promises you good and that he's working everything for your benefit, he does not mean you will never experience any of these things. He does not mean that. 
Here's what he says in conclusion. In all these things, we are conquerors. In all these things. And you just read about the life of Paul, you know, in Corinthians. He tells you, you know, we've endured this and this and this. Uh, we've come to the point of death. Paul says, I, you know, there was a time I knew I was going to die. And then he didn't. And in all of those things, I experience the love of God in Christ and conquer and find victory. He says, when I'm weak is when I'm strong. Because when I'm in distress is when I experience the provision of Almighty God in a deeper way than I knew was possible. My mother, many years ago, like when I was in university, that was a long time ago, <laughs> she uh, had a bout with cancer. Very difficult. So she went through years of chemotherapy, and this was in the early 1980s. Chemotherapy wasn't as good then as it is now. Still, even now, very difficult, very sick. Said it's the worst thing that ever happened. So that's what she would tell you. And she would tell you, I drew closer to God in Christ during that time than I thought was possible. In these things, we are more than conquerors. God is conforming us to the image of his son. Bad things happen, but nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. This reality should have a definite, noticeable impact on our character and personality in the world. If this is true, and I realize it. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm going to read that to you. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. <laughs> Which means whatever's not done on that day will be done on that day. God will not fail. He will not fail in what he is accomplishing for his own glory in you. He will not fail. Now, what impact does that have on you? Recognizing the truth of that. Well, it means in all these things you are overwhelmingly a conqueror through him who loves you. 
I'm convinced death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing, none of it will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know, there's two things in this text for you to do. Two things you might do. One is to know. (laughs) Is to know. We know. We don't know how to pray. We do know that God causes everything to work together for our benefit. And our benefit is to conform us to the image of his son. We do know that. So know that. The other thing for you to do is trust it. We need to know what's good for us. Well, what that means is we need to trust him with what's good for us. Our vision is not so good. His is perfect. Trust him. We need to know that God knows what's good for us. And what's good for us is to be conformed to to the image of Jesus Christ. Two things to do in this text. Pray and know. Pray. This doesn't say don't pray. It just says pray whatever your little heart desires. And it's good because the Spirit intercedes for you. You know... I don't even have to worry about my ignorance. I don't know what to pray for, so I pray for whatever I know to pray for. And it's fine because the Spirit intercedes in, 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 on my behalf according to the will of God. So I can pray with total ignorance about whatever is on my heart. I come to God as Abba, Father, Like a tiny little child, I climb up on his lap and I tell him all about everything he should do because I know. And he's like, yeah, uh, uh I hear you, son. Thanks for sharing that with me. And it's only about the fact that I'm with him that really counts. When I start praying, I've already done the thing Jesus died to buy for me. I'm with the Father, my Father in heaven, because of the sacrifice of Christ. And the Spirit is saying, uh, what he really needs is... <clears throat> and that's perfectly okay. Now, I can read the Word of God and get myself a little better informed about how to pray a little bit more intelligently, sure. Sure. But then I don't have to worry about it. I trust him. And if you think about (laughs) pray and know, pray, whatever, and know that the Spirit intercedes and the Son intercedes and the Father has in mind your benefit and he knows what he's doing, pray plus know equals trust. And here's what happens when I live in pray plus no equals trust, I become safe. And you know what happens to a person who is safe? 
A person who is safe becomes powerful. Because in all these things, I'm more than a conqueror. I, I know that. I trust that. So what do I have to worry about from you? Or from the world who's going to hate me for this? I become powerful, and you might say, powerful in what? Powerful how? Not just powerful in that, you know, I'm going to knock you down and take over the place. Not that kind of powerful. No, vulnerable powerful. Christ-like powerful. Christ was powerful enough to give himself a sacrifice for sin. The, the power that says, not my will, but thine, that power is what we're talking about. Not the, you know, crush everybody and rule the world kind of power, but the sacrifice myself for someone else's benefit kind of power. Very few people have that kind of power except all of us. Every last one of us who is in Christ has access to this power, which is the power to love. To give without need. To provide without demand. That's what we're talking about. So we come to this resolution. (laughs) This is God's resolution. This is what he is doing. So I'm going to pray slightly smarter knowing this. I'm going to pray that this, this reality becomes clearly visible in the fellowship of International Bible Church of Bonaire. That's what we really need. Father, I do pray that your transforming grace would grip our hearts, that your love would be real to us, and we would let go of all these petty things we think we need and cling to you and trust in you and know that you are working this amazing thing into us in Christ. Give us confidence, boldness to share this good news and to live in it so that we become powerful people to, to, to love one another and the world around us. Lord, these are things only you can do. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.